Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Here we are again. Can you believe that it has been a whole week since we were last here? Funniest quote I've heard this week from uh, a survival forum (laughs) is this. uh, Just remember, moss always grows on the north side of the corpse of someone who thought they didn't need to carry a compass. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host. I had borderline personality disorder for the first 35 years of my life. It defined and finally destroyed my life. Over the course of seven years, more or less, I managed to identify, demystify, and finally rid myself of borderline personality disorder authentically, once and for all. During that excruciating process, I learned a lot of things that I didn't see explained adequately anywhere else. And that's why I began The Last Symptom, to help others who are trying to do the same for themselves that I did. My work is supported by donations and one-on-one consults. So if you're interested in either one of these things for yourself or for somebody else, you can take care of both over at thelastsymptom.com. And while I'm mentioning thelastsymptom.com, let me tell you that thelastsymptom.com is full of plenty of free resources that I hope you'll take advantage of. Of course, I'm not a tech wizard or anything, so I'm constantly learning and trying to improve thelastsymptom.com. I appreciate your support of the website, as I do appreciate your support of all aspects of my work. Years and years ago, when I was uh, going through an intensive program in Arizona, you, you've probably heard me talk about it in the past. I was going through a, an intensive outpatient program You know, this is back when I was trying to figure out this thing called borderline personality disorder and get a handle on it. So I was in this intensive program. And for those of you who don't know how it works, you're in a big group of all sorts of people. And to get the day started, everybody gets a chance to check in, as they call it, which really just means that you're sharing any thoughts you had from the day before or things going on in your life. So I had already done my sharing for that morning and I'd passed it on to the person next to me. Uh, so it finally it goes around the room. You know, there's maybe 30, 40 people in the room. And it finally gets around to another fellow who was sitting directly across from me. And the first thing he said for his check-in was, and I'm not making this up, he says, you know, I sit here listening to everybody talk every day. And when it gets to Brian Barnett, I watch him do his check-in with that little smirk on his face. And I just want to punch it right off of his face. <laughs> I'm laughing now, but I wasn't laughing then. He he caught me completely off guard with that. 
And, uh, you know, here I just shared my vulnerable soul with the whole room, this whole room full of strangers. And he come back with, <laughs> I want to punch Brian Barnett in the face. <laughs> oh, man. It, after, after I processed that for a second or two, I went off on him. I mean, I was pissed. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. It's funny when I think about it now. What he didn't know is that the smirk he was seeing was not from arrogance. It was from nerves. The smirk was from sheepish shame and from nerves. So if he had known that, he might have realized that he and I weren't really that different on the inside. But <laughs> I, can, I can identify with what he was feeling because I've, I mean, surely you've seen, <laughs> just seen faces that you would just like to punch. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy usually they're on um politicians <laughs> faces of politicians the topics we're going to be covering today are the following number one the new movie about mr rogers starring tom hanks it's called it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood number two Parental irresponsibility and manipulation. And number three, my attitude toward common popular treatments. Well, let's get started. Uh, have you seen the new movie? It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood with Tom Hanks. You should. You should. It is an excellent, excellent movie. I've seen it twice now. Um, I plan to buy the movie and I plan to watch the heck out of it. Until it's just dilapidated and worn out. Very good movie. Uh, as you know, I did a tribute to Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, that was in Season 1, Episode 51 of this, of this show. Now, the movie struck a little bit close to home for me because, as you all know, I have a very awkward and painful relationship with my dad. And uh, this movie revolves around a story like that. I don't want to give too much of the movie away, but I don't think that hurts anything to tell you that. I will give you an Easter egg. There's a part in the movie where Fred Rogers is having the protagonist sit and think about uh, the people, the people who were, have been positive influences in his life, and he just wants him to set a minute aside to do that. And um, everything goes quiet, and they're in a restaurant. And during... That scene in the restaurant, you will get to see Fred Rogers' true wife. So she makes a cameo in the movie. She's eating a salad. You'll see her stop while she's eating a salad. That's that was that's Mr. Rogers' real wife. Now, I do have some complaints about the movie. Uh, first of all, in the movie, it seems to be that Fred Rogers' message was that children can learn that it's okay to feel what they feel. You say, well, Brian, how can you have a problem with that? Isn't that a stretch to have a problem with that? Well, listen again to what I said. Fred Rogers' message was children can learn that it's okay to feel what they feel. You know, I don't really have a problem with that. Here, I just think you can do better. And here's why. Children are not born doubting if it's okay to feel. You see, they have to learn that in the environment they're growing up in, 
it's not okay to feel. If you just left children alone, they would never doubt that their feelings, whether their feelings are okay or not. They learn to doubt that from their parents. So I love that Fred Rogers wanted to try to help kids after the damage was already done, but the solution is really teaching parents, right? Teaching the parents so that the parents don't communicate to their children unknowingly that there's something wrong with feelings in the first place. So if children are never taught that feeling things is bad, then they'll never believe that their feelings are bad. That You see how the answer is really to get back to the very root of the problem and prevent these things from happening at all. Another complaint I have is Tom Hanks. Now, I don't have any complaint about Tom Hanks in the movie. I have complaints about Tom Hanks outside of the movie doing interviews. Because the more he talks, the more I realize that he does not get it. So don't watch any Tom Hanks interviews before you see the movie. Because it'll just ruin the experience for you. And I'll tell you why. He just doesn't get the profoundness of Fred Rogers' message. He doesn't. He played the part well. But that's because he's a good actor. He faked it well. But when you see the interviews with Tom Hanks, the profoundness of what Mr. Rogers represented goes right over his head. And the more Tom Hanks talks, the more this just becomes apparent, and I just find it off-putting. For example, Tom Hanks asserts repeatedly in interviews that Mr. Rogers' message was intended only for two- to four-year-olds who don't know anything about the world, and that for anybody who knows, quote-unquote, the world, Mr. Rogers is irrelevant. And I, I just find this absolutely obnoxious and offensive. How many people can you think of whose lives would be improved if they shed off what they quote-unquote know of the world and instead took the time to know the world differently? So as big of a fan as I am of Tom Hanks, he does himself no favors whatsoever when he interviews at length about playing the Mr. Rogers role. Only good for ignorant little two- to four-year-olds who know nothing about the world. Can you imagine? Thank God that Hanks was not in charge of writing or directing this film and that he only had to act in it. You know what they say, never meet your heroes. I don't think Tom Hanks is a bad person. I just think he's too self-involved to take a few minutes to really tap into the profoundness and underlying value of what makes Fred Rogers a remarkable individual. No, Hanks was more worried about the superficial stuff, like whether pomegranate tea would be in a shot and if he was putting on the sweaters correctly. So it sounds like I just complained about the movie itself, but I'm not complaining about the movie. Definitely see it. It's phenomenal. It's going to be in my collection. And as a companion to the movie, after you finish, run over to thelastsymptom.com or however you listen to this show. And listen again to the episode of this show that I dedicated to Mr. Rogers' memory. That was season one, episode 51. It was a special episode, and uh, if you haven't heard it yet, it's going to be a treat for you. Now, let's talk about something that really sticks in my crawl. Parental manipulation and irresponsibility. Somebody recently said to me, and we're just going to call this person Teddy, 
Teddy said to me, I was having a conversation with my parent about the things I've been learning from the last symptom and about things I needed as a child but didn't get. And my parent said, well, what were we supposed to do given the circumstances? And Teddy says that he's now been locked on this, can't get his mind off of it. He says, I can't figure out how the specifics of how they could have fulfilled what I needed. And I'm beginning to wonder if maybe they don't got a good point. Do you see how Teddy is being suckered by an expert scam artist? That's, that's what his parent is. His parent and probably a lot of your parents are expert scam artists. They're swindlers. They don't know that they're scam artists and swindlers, but they are. And your job is to learn to perceive the reality of that. To learn to perceive that things that seem loving sometimes only seem loving. They aren't really loving. To learn to perceive that sometimes people who we think of as nice are not really nice. They just seem nice. You see, um, something I repeat often to people I talk to is that abuse, even when it's done sweetly, is still abuse, ain't it? So Teddy says he can't get his mind off this. Now he's lying in bed at night, awake, trying to work the details of how his parents could have given him the things he needed as a child. We're talking about emotional things, right? How has Teddy allowed his focus to be misdirected away from the healthy principles and laws that should be guiding Teddy's entire perspective and thinking here. And, uh, you know, the reason I'm sharing with th- this with you all is because I'm positive that Teddy's not the only one who has encountered or is encountering this situation. I know I have. If I had regular contact with my parents, I'd still be encountering this situation all the time. But let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time in Teddy's entire life when it has been Teddy's responsibility as his parents' child to figure out for his parents how they could or can do their jobs as his parents better? Are you starting to see why I say that his parents are con artists? Is it ever a son or a daughter's job to work out for his or her parents the details of how they can be or could have been good parents? And then is it ever a son or a daughter's job to explain the details for them? It has never been, and it will never be, Teddy's responsibility to figure these things out for his mom and his dad. Teddy doesn't have to allow himself to get suckered into sleepless nights trying to work out the details. There's no situation at all, none, short of they were dead, that excuses parents from living up to their responsibilities. Now, yes, there, there are a few exceptions to this. The way that we determine this is what people are capable of, not what they're able to do, all right? What's the difference? Well, go back <laughs> go back to the episode of this show that talks about that, just briefly here. 
I'm not able to play the piano, but I'm capable of playing the piano. You see the difference there? Our abilities are based on what we don't know, do know, um, what we've learned, what we haven't learned, and that sort of thing. Our capabilities are not based on any of those things. Our capabilities are an inherent, ingrained part of us. It describes the, the possibility that is always there. So let's say that uh, you had a parent that was mentally ill, literally insane. Well, an insane person is not capable of thinking straight, right? It's not just that they're unable to think straight. They're incapable so if you had parents who were both insane, literally insane, then that would fall under the category of what they were incapable of doing. But there's very few circumstances like that. And most of the time, most of you listening, what you think your parents were incapable of doing is false. You're, you're thinking about what they were unable to do, not what they were incapable of doing. Right? So your parents were capable in 99.999% of the cases of parenting you healthfully. They just didn't. They didn't care enough, and they didn't try hard enough. So they were unable because they were ignorant. But they were still capable. The only reason I bring this all up is because there's no situation short of they were incapable. Not simply unable, but incapable. And death falls into that category, right? If your parents are dead, they're incapable of parenting you at all, let alone healthfully. If your parents were both insane, literally insane, then their brains weren't functioning correctly. That means that they were incapable of parenting you healthfully. But anything short of this sort of thing, they were capable so there's nothing that excuses them from living up to their responsibilities. And this, this is the only thing that Teddy has to remember. So let me, I got off track there for a little bit, but let me sum it up again. There is no situation at all, none, that excuses parents from living up to their responsibilities. And this is the only thing that Teddy has to remember. The only exception to what I just said is if they were incapable, incapacitated, so if Teddy recognizes that this is the truth, that nothing exempts parents from living up to their responsibilities to their children, then what this means is that Teddy doesn't have to figure out how his parents could have done better. All Teddy has to know is, one, it was their responsibility to do it, and two, they didn't do it. It's Teddy's parents, and only Teddy's parents, who are responsible for figuring out the specifics of what they can do differently or could have done differently and how to live up to their responsibilities. As their child, it isn't Teddy's responsibility to do this for them. Do you see how the same parents who failed in their responsibilities to begin with, in other words, they didn't provide for Teddy, they were the ones who were solely responsible for looking out for, providing for, and caring for, Teddy's physical well-being, mental well-being, and emotional well-being. Now do you see how these same parents who failed in that are still living with the same attitude and non-responsibility now, even 30, 40, 50 years later? It's really disgusting. Instead of doing an honest self-examination and coming up with real answers 
you know, answers that probably don't fit into their self-centered way of living. They want to chuck the job over to Teddy and let him figure it out for him. Here, Teddy, you figure out what we could have done better. Hopefully you can't imagine doing this to your own sons or daughters. You know, a lot of us um, who are in this situation dealing with our parents from one direction, we turn to the other direction and there's our kids, right? There's our kids and they're looking to us and we're their parents. How are we living up to our responsibilities? Hopefully, hopefully you can't even imagine shirking your responsibility off onto your kids like your parents did to you. As parents of our own children, the burden for figuring out the details of how we're going to best provide for their emotional, mental, and physical needs and protection is ours alone. It's not their responsibility. Any failures or consequences from our failures are not their responsibility. It's not their fault. It's not their job to show us the way. How utterly selfish, immature, and absurd to live with any perspective that suggests otherwise. Can you imagine, for example, if you found out that your child was being bullied at school? was just being bullied to death at school. Would you allow that to continue and just say, well, I mean, my hands are tied. There's not much I can do. What is a parent like that really saying? What they're saying is not that there isn't much that they can do. They're saying that there's not much that they will do. <laughs> right? They're not saying that, they, that their options are limited they're saying that the options that they're willing to go through with are limited. Do you see that? So, if your parents ever pull out the, well, what were we supposed to do, vomit? This is what you say. You say, you were supposed to have figured out the details to that then, and you are still responsible for figuring that out now. Leave it there at their feet, where it belongs. Don't carry their question away with you, bouncing around in your head, trying to answer it yourself. That is misdirection. It's con artistry. It's, it's sleight of hand, you see. It's like me swindling you into digging a ditch that I don't want to dig myself. So leave it at their feet. That's where it belongs. There's no sense in using your own mental energies to work out answers to questions that are not and have never been yours to answer. Leave it with those that it properly does belong to. You know, if you want to answer the, well, what were we supposed to do question, do it for your own children. Do it for your own children. Say, what do they need? What am I willing or not willing to do to provide for those needs? Don't think back into the past to be a counselor to your parents from the past. That's it, not your job. It's, it was never your job. And it's not your job to live with the, the, the weight of trying to figure out how they should have done things differently. They just should have. We don't have to know how they could have done it differently or how they could have managed it or what kind of arrangement, different arrangements they could have made or if it would have meant moving or if it would have meant... Uh, 
change of employment or any of these things. We do not have to know those details. All we have to know is that they were supposed to do something and they didn't do it. You know, I used in the past, I've used a submarine captain as an example. Think about the submarine captain. When a, a tragedy unfolds, right, and this great hack accident happens, nothing frees the captain from the responsibility of what happened on that ship. Not what he didn't know, not anything. Him being in the position of captain or commander or whatever it is, I'm not, you know, I'm not military literate. Him being in that position means that the responsibility was his no matter what. All the failures are his responsibility no matter what. You know, the president of the United States doesn't want a submarine captain or any captain to come back with, well, uh, Mr. President, I don't know how to do what you're asking me. The president doesn't give a crap. The president says, get it done. <laughs> and he has to get it done. It's up to the captain to figure out the details of how he's going to do it, right? Don't let your parents bridle you with what is only their responsibility. When they do this, this is simply a continuance of them shirking their responsibilities off onto their own children. And that is revolting. If you don't see how it's revolting, keep working to understand why it is. Because if, if you don't understand why that is revolting, you simply have more work to do. You're trying to get to a place where you see the true nature of these things. And once you do, you too will be revolted by that. And it's something, you know, the, that these parents have been doing to you your entire life. You don't have to continue playing into it and living with these burdens and sleepless nights, especially while they're at home sound asleep in their own beds with no sense of responsibility or sense of real guilt at all about their failures to you as a child. That is our conversation about parental manipulation and irresponsibility. Now, Somebody asked me here this week about my attitude toward a particular treatment that is popular for borderline personality disorder. And while this person was asking me about a specific treatment, what I'm going to talk to you today is just about all famous treatments in general. All right, because they all fall into the same category for me. I've looked them up. They never cease to disappoint me as far as what I expect to see there. And uh, so this is my commentary on the most popular treatments for the, the most popular established treatments for borderline personality disorder, no matter how famous they are. I'm not against any treatments in themselves. What I am against is the way they are marketed as solutions by the professional community. Nobody and nothing is going to fix you. Maybe you think I just misspoke. I didn't. Let me say it again. Nobody and nothing is going to fix you. Some of these things may help you feel temporarily and superficially better. You know, even if you just believe you're doing something helpful, that alone is enough to make you feel a little better. After all, you're not just sitting around twiddling your thumbs, right? Feeling helpless. I'm not saying that these famous treatments are placebos necessarily. I'm just saying that they're all designed to address symptoms rather than the underlying problem. And, you know, 
I get people who argue with me about this and it's up to you. You know, your, your recovery is up to you. So I'm not going to argue with you about it. If you think that these things are just amazing and they do the same thing that uh, I'm teaching you to do here, have at it. I disagree, but have at it. It's, it's your recovery. Why do I say that nobody and nothing is going to fix you? Well, because in the end, only you can fix yourself. Only you. So I repeated at the beginning, nobody and nothing's going to fix you. Now let me repeat this. In the end, only you can fix yourself. Only you. In the past, I've repeatedly said that recovery is an individual accomplishment. People don't seem to catch on to what I'm saying there. Because I've said it 14 billion times, and I I still have to keep repeating it. So maybe I, maybe I need a different expression to really catch people's attention. And that expression it says the same thing that uh, as recovery is an individual accomplishment. Only you can fix yourself. Only you. Nobody and nothing else is going to fix you for you. So does that include me? Yeah, it sure does. Not even I can cure you using my methods or the things that I teach you here. Only you can cure you using my methods. No program in the world and no super duper spectacularly famous psychologist. Just you and only you. Why is that? It's because the cure to borderline personality disorder involves things like genuine motives, that is, personal interest, and insight. Insight isn't something that anybody else can do for you. Furthermore, these qualities combined with accurate knowledge have to then be applied, but not applied by just anybody. They have to be applied by you. By you, to the specifics of your life story over time, which involves great amounts of deep rumination. Who else can do this ruminating for you except for you? Nobody. Nobody can do this ruminating for you. Who can make you see anything you refuse to see except for you? You know, I could spend an hour just talking about that right there. Who can make you see anything? You refuse to see, except for you. There's no set program or formula that's going to address the specifics of your unique life story and relationships for you and then ruminate over the specifics for a long time for you so that at the end, you've experienced many profound insights and have undone the the disorder. If you throw into the equation that as people, we all become ready to experience insights at different times, or not at all, depending on where we're at in our lives, what's happening in our lives. 
the circumstance, the specific circumstances that are happening in our life that might not be happening in somebody else's life. The specifics of who's trying to help us, what their personality is like, the way that they choose to explain certain concepts, our receptiveness to that person and his or her personality, and on and on and on. The problem with any of these pre-planned treatments is that anybody can do the steps literally without doing a single step. Think about that. I can't get inside of you and make you sit with a concept or a thought until it really breaks through and you experience an enlightened moment. Who's the only person that can do that for you? Only you. You you see, emotional disorders are not like a broken leg or a headache. They're not just something that you can shock out of people or prescribe a pill for, and the problem gets addressed. What is the the underlying problem? What is the underlying problem of borderline personality disorder? The thing that if you fix it, you've fixed borderline personality disorder. Can you tell me? I'll tell you, it is perspectives, your perspectives, erroneous perspectives, erroneous underlying perspectives. Who else but you can fix something like a perspective for you? Only you can do this. Only you can even get yourself to a place where you're willing to question your long-held, established, underlying perspectives. Nobody else can make you do that. Authentic recovery depends on insight, on rumination over the course of years, not months, years. There has to be an accumulation of true insights, which, again, only you can accomplish for yourself, And this accumulation of true insights combined to form a complete and comprehensive explanation in your head of the whole engine, so to speak, as well as its individual working parts. And then you have to begin to redefine relationships and memories that have always represented one thing in your soul, so that now they represent something entirely different, but much more accurate, moving forward. Who can do that for you? What treatment is going to do that for you? None. There is no treatment on earth that is going to do all of these things for you, and yet authentic recovery cannot happen without them. Only you can cure yourself. Nothing can replace what only you can do. Even if you're paying somebody $1,000 per session, the best they can do, the very best they can do, is offer accurate information in an engaging way. And you know the professional community, the, the most famous among them, often charge this much, and they don't even give you that in return, do they? No, they do worse. They charge you $1,000 per hour to convince you that they are your saviors and that they have treatments that are going to fix you, don't they? Your recovery is up to you. 
This brings me to what I said at the beginning about how these treatments are marketed by people who know that these treatments have never cured a single person, but have too much money to lose by saying so. If the treatments were marketed as approaches that cannot and will not ever cure you, but that may soothe you for a while here and there, I wouldn't be nearly as opposed to them. I especially wouldn't be opposed to them if they came with a, a clear disclaimer that explains that only you can cure yourself and explain exactly why this is so, and then provide you with accurate information about the origins of your fundamental issues and how this should be your focus. But the developers of these treatments don't do this, do they? They're primarily interested in managing symptoms. Yes, they're primarily interested in managing symptoms. Because you see, if you can manage a symptom, the person says, oh, something's happening here. What they don't know is that they're going to have to keep managing that symptom for the rest of their life. The symptom has not gone away. It's not the same as getting to the root problem, which are your perspectives, straightening those out, and then not having the symptoms to deal with at all. You see, we all know that no brain tumor has ever been cured by taking aspirin to make the headaches hurt less. So, there's my take on that. I hope you found that enlightening, and I hope you take it to heart moving forward. Ladies and gentlemen, before we go, let me remind you about thelastsymptom.com. If you get a hankering to do so, leave me a donation while you're there. Or schedule a one-on-one phone conversation with me. Maybe I can help you figure some things out. And that brings us to the encouraging finale. What is the most thoughtful gift you've ever gotten from somebody? In my 20s, as a wedding gift, my best friend in the whole world, Jordan, gave me a package, and when I opened it up, I could not believe what was there. And just seven years after I'd opened that box, Jordan was no longer alive. He died in a tragic car accident in Toledo, Ohio. As you can imagine, the gift that was inside is unusually precious to me today. It was a brown leather jacket, but not just any leather jacket. This was an Indiana Jones style leather jacket, and it had one of the movie posters airbrushed by an artist on the back. jaw hit the floor when I got this gift. I have to take you back to 1989 when a 13-year-old me and a 10-year-old Jordan 
were walking through the woods and talking about what we would do if we had a million dollars. And I pulled a small folded up movie poster out of my back pocket and I said, I would have this on the back of a leather jacket. Here, can I borrow that? Jordan said. And I never saw it again until, until my 20s when I opened his gift and I saw that jacket there with the picture from the movie poster I had pulled out of my back pocket at age 13 on the back of that jacket.